Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Think about how different the world is because of whistleblowers. Think about the impact of people like Daniel Ellsberg, Colleen Rowley, Sharon Watkins, Jeffrey Wigand, and Karen Silkwood. Each changed the trajectory of a company or a government for the better, and in doing so, risked making their own lives so much worse. So why do they do it? Why do some individuals put their own moral compass ahead of the risks of being a whistleblower? My guest today, Ashley Yablon, might be able to answer some of these questions because he is a whistleblower. His information had profound impact on one of China's largest technology companies. It would result in the largest fines for such a company. But what lasting consequence did it really have? And was it worth the cost to Yablon? We're going to talk about that today with Ashley Yablon, the author of the just-published Standing Up to China, How a Whistleblower Risked Everything for His Country. Ashley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. It's a delight to have you here. Tell us a little bit about your career as as a lawyer before you joined ZTE, this Chinese company we'll talk about. Sure. Um, I've been a lawyer now. uh, I'm coming on 21 years, but I started off um, obviously in private practice, and I knew I wanted to be an in-house lawyer, and I had a great mentor of mine who, who advised me to, as he said, round out your tool belt. So I spent the first six years doing that and got experience doing litigation, got experience doing contracts, HR, compliance. And when I kind of rounded out that tool belt to be a a good in-house lawyer, I started in first with uh, McAfee, the antivirus software company, and was there for about four years and uh, handled a number of matters, procurement, some HR matters for them. And then after four years, had an opportunity to go to um, a large international company, Huawei, uh, for their their U.S.-based entity here, and they're based here in Texas, and was the worked up to uh, assistant general counsel for for Huawei, and then immediately was courted by their Chinese rival, uh, ZTE, to be their first ever U.S. entity's uh, general counsel. So. Started in with uh, ZTE in 2011. Talk about your time at Huawei, another Chinese company that has also come in for an awful lot of criticism. Right. Um, you know, again, coming from McAfee, um, again, being out of private practice and then going in-house was a, a huge step. So I had to learn a lot, uh, the difference between um, being a, a lawyer at a law firm versus being in-house. Then I made the gigantic uh, change to go not only to be in-house but to be to a, 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 an international company, and, and this one happened to be Chinese at Huawei. And the, the cultural differences were the, the hardest to pick up and trying to explain to them um, the laws. And I, I think I even mentioned this in the book. At, at one point, um, one of the attorneys there, a, a Chinese attorney for Huawei, I was explaining some type of law to her here based in the U.S., and, and her response to me was, that's not a law. That's a suggestion. And I said, no, 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 it's, it's, it's the law. And she, she paused and, and, and said again real slow, no, that's merely a suggestion. And, and you have to understand that's, that's really the culture um, there in, in China. And so, so Huawei um, was a great learning curve, again, um, and, and learned quite a bit. Um, Huawei obviously had a, a number of, of issues and similar to what ZTE has experienced. So um, yeah, it, it, it really prepared me, and I think that was part of the reason why ZTE was so interested. I mean, number one, it's a, it's a big feather in um, the, your cap uh, to kind of steal away an employee. 
from a, a rival company. But also I think that ZTE knew that I understood uh, the, the Chinese culture. Um, so in a way, I was a little bit of a, a unicorn in that sense to work at both uh, Huawei and ZTE. Did you, what were your concerns about that Chinese culture in the context of the legal work you were doing and things like this comment you referred to before that, that it wasn't a law, it was just a suggestion? Certainly alarms might have gone off while you were at Huawei in terms of your concerns about this kind of culture. Yeah, you know, um, great question. I, and I talk about this a lot in the book. My whole journey was based on ambition and blind ambition, actually, and I had such a laser focus. I wanted to be a general counsel, and sometimes when you have that blind ambition, you don't see red flags that are just waving in your face. I certainly didn't because I didn't want to see them, I guess, and uh, did, did I see things? Now looking back at, at, at Huawei, which should have given me pause, of course. Um, were those red flags even more apparent when I became GC for the U.S. entity of CTE? Absolutely. But again, this is everything I had worked for, everything I had sacrificed for, and that blind ambition uh, just basically took over, um, and I didn't, didn't want to see those red flags, which were obviously waving um, starting at, at uh, Huawei and, and continued on, obviously. At ZTE. When you got to ZTE, was the culture similar that, to Huawei? Was there something fundamentally different? What did you initially see there? They're very similar. Um, I would say that ZTE is a little bit, maybe just a, a little bit smaller, not much uh, in size and in revenue than Huawei. But what um, I think what's, what's really uh, apparent, the, the difference between the two um, and, and it became really at light when the Housen investigation uh, went down was they were investigating both Huawei and ZTE for being a threat to U.S. national security. The main point they were trying to make was, hey, both of these companies are owned by the Chinese government. And while ZTE goes out of its way to try to explain that they are not owned by the, the, or, or run by the Chinese government, uh, Huawei makes no qualms about it, and they make zero effort to try to deflect that. So I think that's one of the, the big differences, um, but, but culturally, it's, it's very, very similar. What broader views, if any, did you come to this experience with initially at Huawei and then, then at ZTE in terms of, of the global rivalry between China and the U.S. and how you saw the, the Chinese role in the state of, of, of larger geopolitics? You know, as I say in the book, China is the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and you either get to understand and, and understand how to work with it because um, it's taking over, and you either understand that and learn to work with them, understand the cultural differences between West and East, and there are sub, you know, substantial differences, um, and that's that's really at, uh, at the heart of it. And with these telecom companies um, having so much power, and uh, we have such a need for that telecom all around the globe. Everyone um, is is beholden to all their telecom, their smartphones, etc. Um, they they hold the power and their ability to mass produce because of their 
uh, ability to have such uh, inexpensive labor versus, say, here in the United States, it puts them at such an advantage. And the, the dealings with China, you have to understand their culture. And we here in, in the West have such a linear view. It's A, to get to B is, is very linear. linear. It's, a, it's a direct line. While the Eastern uh, mentality is is more meandering, and it, it isn't a straight line, and, and there's a lot more to getting to know someone and getting to know them on a personal level, uh, which in Western culture seems like a waste of our time. We just want to get right to the end result, but for, for, the, for the East, that's something you have to learn in dealing with them, that that's, that is their culture, and that's important, and so it's a little bit more of meandering, so to answer your question – it's learning these these kind of uh, differences between the cultures that plays a key part or else uh, because believe me the, the China is certainly learning how to work um, with the West we need to do a better job of understanding how to work with the East and with China how did you come to understand it how did you come to work with it and accept it you know it started like I said at at Huawei and I you know you you have to understand when things are said to you um, you can't take it at face value. That is, that's probably the key. And I talk quite a bit about that in the book. Um, it's all about saving face. And if someone says to you, you're doing a great job, they probably don't mean that. And you're probably not doing a great <laughs> job. And so you have to understand that certain times when things would, you know, not be or go well for me, or I couldn't get something across was when I was trying to use more of a Western approach and I would have to stop myself and realize, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with someone from China. I need to understand their culture and how to go about it. So it's, it's looking through things through a different lens, and that's, I, 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 start to, I started to get that at Huawei and certainly got that a lot at, um, at ZTE. How did they see you? Did they look at you as, as an outsider? Did you feel like an outsider? I did. I felt like an outsider, and, and they reinforced that at ZTE over and over again. You have to remember all the uh, executives that are here, uh, here in the U.S. for the U.S. entity of ZTE, 80% of the whole office, 80%, is Chinese nationals. They're all here expatriates on, on visas of different kinds, so only 20% of the office is, is U.S. citizens. Now, for me, um, all the executives are Chinese uh, you know, nationals. The only executive who was a U.S. citizen was myself. And so I always felt like an outsider. You know, I, I talk about it quite a bit in the book. Um, it's that, uh, that scene which I call the, the Thanksgiving meeting where uh, we were, had a huge meeting with all the executives, again, all Chinese nationals, and myself, and they're huddled in the room talking uh, again in Mandarin. And then one would come over and talk to me and, and was, you know, we're under this investigation. You're our general counsel. What do we do? And at the end of it, it was very apparent that I needed to find uh, an outside counsel to assist us in, the, in this uh, investigation. But they made it very clear that I was the one who would be standing up and, and representing that, that ZTE was doing uh, nothing wrong. So I always felt like a little bit of an outsider. We would have meetings or they would go meet with the council that I had already vetted and given them a list. And then it was, stay over there, Ashley. We, we, we will take it from here. So there was always that outsider feeling that I got from them. Did you speak Mandarin? I did not, no. And, and did you consider learning it? Did you think that that would be an asset at some point? Um, 
possibly, but but everyone that I dealt with from everyone, all the Chinese uh, uh, expatriates were all spoke English. Uh, my Chinese staff, again, they didn't allow me to hire staff, but I had three Chinese attorneys, young attorneys, uh, who were not licensed to practice here in the U.S., were licensed in China. They all spoke wonderful English, and, and everyone I dealt with spoke English, even the ones in Shenzhen when I would have them be on phone calls. So that was something I thought about. I thought I might need it at first, but it really wasn't uh, anything that was really necessary because everyone spoke English. Talk about the what got your attention in terms of red flags. We talked a little bit about it before, but but here it went a little further. What happened? Well, first of all, that that first meeting, um, you know, I, I got hired in October, and so one month after being hired, we're now under house investigation. So that was in November. Fast forward to December, um, I'm sitting in my office, and one of the uh, again Chinese attorney, that young young Chinese attorney, came to my office and and asked me right there, um, "Hey Ashley, can you tell us how we can legally legally sell to the banned embargoed countries?" And I kind of stopped for a minute, thinking, "Am I hearing this correctly?" And I said, "Again, I'm not an expert in import export law." But I certainly can get someone who is, and so the next day I set up a phone call with a with a partner at a large firm uh, here in Dallas, who who handles import export, and had them again. They asked the same question, and and the attorney basically said, uh, "Well, I'm gonna need a lot more facts. Can I just put together a you know an email and and send that to you with more facts?" And the attorney, the Chinese attorney, said, "Absolutely." And then that attorney called me right back on a private call and said. Are you kidding me? Am I hearing this right? They want to sell legally to the embargoed, banned countries of Iraq, Iran, Syria, and I said that's what I'm hearing. And then the red flag was that, but also the very next day when I said, "Well, have y'all answered the questions that the attorney proposed?" and they said, "You know what? Forget it. Just act like we never even brought that up. Forget that that whole line of conversation. Don't worry about it." So that was another huge red flag. And then there were red flags that just went on um, as as this whole, as you read in the book, that just go on and on um, dealing with ZTE. What was the breaking point for you? The breaking point was was being in China, and again, we had the House Intelligence Committee wanting to come to China. They wanted to ask questions at Shenzhen. Both Huawei and ZTE are based in Shenzhen, so they wanted – Answers. They they didn't want a dog and pony show. They wanted to know and see actual documents and proof that neither one were a threat to U.S. security and that neither one were uh, owned or run by the Chinese government. Right before we were going to do that, and that was in April, uh, in March, Reuters got its hands um, on and came out with a, an article. They got their hands on a contract between ZTE and the country of Iran. And not only did they have a, a contract for spying technology that, that ZTE was providing to Iran, but they got their hands on the nine, over 900-page packing list. So we all know what a packing list is, something you get at Ikea that tells you everything in the box. But this one went even further, and the problem with it was it told you not only like one large you know, spying cell tower, but it told you every component part in it. The problem was… It was all these U.S. component parts, and so the the rub, the issue was, 
ZTE had formed all these various shell entities, shell companies, to buy these U.S. component parts, and through an elaborate scheme, was able then to sell those back to ZTE in various forms, and then build out the equipment using U.S. component parts. And the problem is, every one of these contracts with these component part manufacturers has a clause in there, and it's, it basically says you will not re-export to the banned countries. And that's exactly what ZTE had figured out a way to do through these various shell companies. So what happened was that article comes out. Uh, the uh, One of the, the, the offices going bananas, how, and the whole whole office there at ZTE USA is going crazy. And everyone's running around, and, and one of the attorneys that, that worked for me, a, a young lady, I said, why is everyone so freaked out? I said, we shouldn't be worrying about how they got it. She said, how did they get this? How did they get this? And I said – we shouldn't worry how they got it. We need to worry about what we do next. And she said something that was so profound and, again, just made me stop in my tracks. I said, why are you so worried about how they got it? And she said, because now we can't hide anything. So fast forward the very next day, I got a subpoena from the Department of Commerce wanting those two very things. They're wanting the, they're wanting the contract with Iran, and they're wanting that packing list. And so, again, we're already planning on going to China there in April, and so we're now on two parallel tracks. We have one track that's going to be you know, helping and, and preparing for this House investigation committee that's coming over in their visit. But the other track was myself and another attorney who needed to kind of look and look into this contract and this packing list. So I was, again, ZTE has a massive campus there in Shenzhen, so when we got there… Um, one track is working on the house investigation uh, coming over, and the other side, myself and one other attorney, wanted to look at this contract, and we need to see what it, it said. And I was led to a, a large tower office there at ZPE on the campus and taken upstairs to um, a floor that was abandoned. There was no lights really on. There was nobody on the floor. And you can imagine it was just filled with you know, used office furniture and you know, lining the hallways. And I was led to a room, uh, no windows, and the room was dark, and there's just one Chinese gentleman sitting there at a table with a laptop computer and a projector. And I said – and the other attorney that I, we had hired was in there as, as well with me, and I said, I need to see the agreement. He said, we're not going to do that. What I'm going to do is project it on the wall. And through this projector, you can look at it, and you have 15 minutes to look at both the packing list and the contract. Well, 15 minutes goes by really quick when you're trying to look at an over 900-page document. But as I mentioned, these were U.S. component parts, and so all we could do was basically call out the name of a, of a large U.S. component part manufacturer and see how many hits, because it was a searchable PDF, how many hits we could find of that, of that company. So you know, take an, as an example, I can't remember, but off the top of my head, you say IBM or Qualcomm or something like that, and then you see you have you know 200 hits or 300 hits, meaning 300 times that product is, or company is mentioned in that packing list. But the real kicker was when they projected the contract, and any international contract is split down the middle. One half is in Chinese, and the other half is in, in English. And as I'm standing up and I'm looking again on the wall, it's just being projected. It's scrolling, and I'm reading through it. And again, I only had 15 minutes. 
And all of a sudden I said, wait a minute. And I asked the gentleman to scroll back. And there, one section in there was called how we are going to get around U.S. export laws. And they had, were so brazen, they had actually put together a, a, a chart. And so I now, now I understood what all these shell companies were. It listed out this one would be the one that would buy it from the U.S. manufacturers. This is the one that would sell it. This is the one would put it together, and it would all come back to ZTE, and then it was being shipped. So imagine these large crates that are in Iran, huge wooden crates filled with hundreds of millions of dollars of equipment. And the last arm of this shell companies was the one that would come and actually put it all together. So there is a ZTE component that would come out and build it on site throughout wherever it was and here in, in Iran. I nearly fell out of my chair when I saw that, but then what happened was I went back because the 15 minutes were up, and I met back with the other group of attorneys, and the head attorney for ZTE, the general counsel who oversaw me and, and some of the other ones in other countries, had a number two in charge, and he was standing there, and he was talking with another a large group of Chinese uh, ZTE employees, and uh, I saw them talking. And he, uh, they were talking again in Mandarin, and he came over to me and he said, Ashley, you know, we have this, this subpoena and we have to you know, provide these documents to the government. What if we say that we never shipped any of this to Iran? And I said, well, the problem is they already know you have, so that's, that's not going to work. And he said, okay. And he walked back over to the group, and they talked, and then he came back and he said, okay, what about this? What if we go and we, we, we get – we open up all those crates and we take out all the U.S. component parts? And replace them with other countries' parts. They're not U.S. parts. And I said, again, cat's already out of the bag. They already know you've done it. That's not going to work. He said, okay. He went back and he came back a third time. And he said, what if we scratch out all the uh, serial numbers of the U.S. component parts? And I said, again, it's the same issue. They already know you've done it. So he went back. He talks to him again, and he comes back to me, and he says, okay, we're going to comply. We're going to provide the U.S. government with everything that they want. I said, great, great. I think that's great. He walks back to the group, and again, I'd mentioned that, that Chinese uh, attorney who, who worked for me who said, now we can't hide anything. She's over there listening to it, and she comes back to me, and she says, Ashley, do you know what they just said? And I said, no. She said, and this is the red flag. She said, Ashley, they just said that they're not going to comply. They're going to destroy all the evidence, and they're going to make you the scapegoat. You're going to have to go and explain that they've done nothing wrong. That's when the ultimate red flag went off for me, and that's when I decided I needed to, to do something. At any point prior to this, as you saw what was evolving before it got to this flashpoint, did you consider quitting, leaving the company? Uh, I did, um, but and I'm asked that quite a bit, and, and, and here's the problems with, with that. Number one, this was my dream job and everything I had worked for. And so I was seeing everything through rose-colored glasses. I didn't want to believe it, right? And I didn't want to believe that I was in the middle of such a storm. That's number one. Number two, in-house positions are, just don't grow on trees. They're nearly impossible to get, let alone to become a general counsel. The top, top attorney in, in a legal department of a company, is, is, that's, that's impossible. That's so hard. I'm like anyone else. I have a mortgage. I have student loan, law school loans, everything. Um, my wife at the time had just left and started her own practice, so I'm the only one with really a stable job. 
So I needed an income just like anyone else. And then lastly, I knew if something was going to happen, even if I were to leave and resign, I am somewhat of a unicorn in the sense that there's no one else who's been the attorney for both Huawei and ZTE. So regardless if I just resigned and thought I just dusted in my hands of the situation, someone from the government would be coming to me because of what I knew. So those were the factors that I had that, that while I was weighing it all out, that I, I, I realized that I couldn't just turn around and quit. What advice, what counsel did you seek at this point? I immediately, when the, that happened, I actually was supposed to stay a few more days, actually another week, and I changed my flight. I called my wife, told her what was going on, and she said, you need to get home, but just to let you know, Ashley, there's, they're, they're stopping ZTEs all in the news, and they're stopping people and arresting ZTE people, and I said, oh, great. So I was concerned about flying back, but I left early, and I immediately met with attorney started with an employment lawyer, and he said, yeah, you have employment issues, but you also have criminal issues. I met with a criminal lawyer, and he said the exact same thing. So I then met with uh, other kinds of attorneys, and at one point I, I had over five different attorneys that I was personally paying to represent me. But my, my criminal lawyer basically spelled it out that, you know, again, I needed to go to the FBI and, and, and in a way whistleblow, and, and here's the kind of the difference. What I, what I wrestled with was attorney-client privilege, and certainly we've all heard of attorney-client privilege. So if your, your client comes to you and tells you they've done something bad in the past, you as an attorney have a duty to, to keep that privileged and confidential. The exception of that is when your client comes to you and tells you they're going to further a crime. They're going to do something in the future, and that's what ZTE was, was telling me, and, and this wasn't just a petty crime or a small crime. This was a a major crime and a crime and a lie against our country, and that's what really stuck with me, and uh, I was at the heart of it, and if I, if I didn't say something, I'd be committing treason, and that's the way I saw it, and that's what my criminal lawyer tried to get across to me. So um, that's when I went and spoke with the FBI. And what was the government's reaction to this? You know, the government – Again, the FBI is in the information gathering business, not the information giving business, but they, they were already on to uh, ZTE, and they, they knew a lot of this but, but didn't really have an inside person. So I sat down for, for, for two days basically with the FBI um, and gave them all the information about the companies, the, the shell companies, the names of these companies the people involved, uh, all the players, and from that they created a what turned into a 32-page affidavit that they provided uh, to a judge in order to, and as my understanding, to do somewhat of a raid on on ZTE. And that affidavit and that whole that whole thing that they did was so supposed to be filed under seal, meaning that it, it wasn't something that the public could ever know about. Um, and unfortunately. Mine got leaked, and that's where all the problems uh, occurred. And talk a little bit about you, you were still working for the company for ZTE at this point. I was. I was. Um, and I was working there, and then when it, the uh, affidavit got leaked and I was contacted by um, – uh, it's actually called the smoking gun, but uh, it's a, a form of, of Turner Broadcasting. And 
he got a copy of the uh, affidavit and was going to publish it and a whole article. And um, I, you know, immediately called my he called me wanting if I had a you know anything to say about it. I called my criminal lawyer, just in a panic. How did this get leaked? And sure enough, we could never find out how it got leaked. I knew it was coming out on a, on a certain evening. And as you read in the book, it's actually the opening opening scene of the book. My wife and I sitting in a panic, um, just refreshing and refreshing. Um, and when it hit, that's when she looked at me and said, we've got 30 minutes to get out of this house. And um, that's how it all started. What do you regret most about the way this played out? Um, well, I, you know, obviously I'm, I'm disappointed in the way that it, it got leaked. Um, and I have my I have my suspicions about that. Obviously, none of this would have gone down, uh, but for it getting leaked and you know all the eventual death threats and things like that. Um, I, it, I, I guess I, I regret. I don't know if I regret, but you know it took a real impact on my life, um, both um, financially, uh, emotionally, um, career-wise. Was just a killer. I mean, for for over two years after the whole incident, I couldn't. I couldn't get a job, and I wondered if it was that I had been somewhat tagged or blacklisted. Oh my goodness, that's that guy from ZTE. Um, but it, it really, you know, that really wreaks and, and havoc on your emotions and your psyche. Uh, so I, 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 you know, I regret all that. I wish things had been different um, because it certainly played out that way, and and made me really question again being a GC to have such a, a, a really bad uh, taste in my mouth. Um, I think those are the things um, that I, I, I regret and wish things had been differently. Do you think that you were specifically set up at a certain point by ZTE to be the fall guy? Well, I, I think I, I fit the part perfect, again, uh, to be um, an, an American, to be someone who already understood Chinese culture, to be kind of stolen away um, from Huawei, and to be – yeah, I, I, I feel so. Looking back – uh, I didn't see it at the time, of course, but looking back, I can say that. I, I feel like it was. It, it, it certainly uh, checks all the boxes that uh, I, was, I was somewhat picked um, to, to be this, this person, to be the fall guy. And when you look now at, at Chinese companies here in the U.S. and this, this, this battle, particularly in this realm of technology and communications technology – that goes on between China and the U.S., whether it's things like ByteDance or Huawei or ZTE. How do you view it today? With eyes wide open, uh, I'm not surprised. Uh, as an example, you know, uh, ZTE is back in the news again for violating the terms of that 2017 um, agreement for the third time. Uh, that was at the heart of, of my, uh, you know, my issue. And you know, now it's it's more related to visas, um, but again, it's not just China. You, you see what happened with Ericsson recently, and I, I just think that the the money is just too great uh, for them to not want to uh, wet their beaks. And um, you know, the ZTE went through such an elaborate scheme when when they finally admitted and everything. Um, uh, you, you saw that the, they'd come up with such an elaborate scheme to, to get around the laws and to and to to uh, make quite a bit of money. And so, uh, you know, in 2017, when they finally agreed to everything, everyone asked me, "Do I feel vindicated?" You know, because if you read the order, it reads like my affidavit. It's almost verbatim. 
They list out and agree to everything, all the shell companies, all the people, everything. So I, I, I look at it uh, eyes wide open, and I, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm just not surprised. Um, I just think it's uh, just par for the course for them. And is this something you think is going to continue to get worse? I, I, I had hoped – I had hoped in 2017 that, that it would serve as a wake-up call to not only ZTE but to uh, Huawei or to other companies. Unfortunately, as we just saw with the recent events with Ericsson as well as with ZTE back in, in the news again, I just think – I don't know if it's going to get worse. I just don't know if it's ever going to get any better, and I, I was optimistic that it would, but I just don't know if it ever will, and that's, that's my concern. Ashley Yablon, his book is Standing Up to China, How a Whistleblower Risked Everything for His Country. Ashley, I thank you so much for spending time with us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.